Hey, thanks for tuning into the Fire Rescue Wellness Podcast. This is episode 93. Today's guest had never done a previous podcast until she appeared on my episode 86, which was just under two months ago. Now, I don't have any tattoos. I also don't have any cats. I'm violently allergic to them. But from my understanding, once you get a tattoo or you get a cat, you just start collecting them. I think that that is what's going to happen with my guest, Kelsey Bailey, because we love having these conversations, these conversations so much that I think that she's just going to become a periodic guest, whether she likes it or not. So if you did not listen to her previous episode, number 86, hop back on and listen to that one as well. But today we sat down and we talked a lot about gut health. And let's be honest, we talked about poop and we talked about wonderful things that you can do for your gut health, things that can impact it in a good way and a bad way. It was a great conversation. I know you're going to love it. Uh, One ask for you please hop on to whatever podcast platform you listen on. Make sure you're following the podcast. And if you would be so kind as to leave a rating and a review, that would be great. I'd appreciate it so much. Welcome back to the show, Kelsey Bailey. Thank you for joining me on the Fire Rescue Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, AZ. I find the research and resources and then provide the fire service with the so what, now what? to ensure the health and well-being of every member of our profession. Together, let's thrive. Podcast listeners, have I got a story for you. I am back today with Kelsey Bailey. First, Kelsey, say hello to the listeners for the second time. Hello, listeners. Thank you for having me back. This is so exciting because Kelsey was on just like a month ago, episode number 86, where she was talking about her position, her contract with South Metro Fire. But we, during that conversation, kind of went down a rabbit hole and I was like, immediately, yes, we have to have another podcast. So after never being on a podcast, she's now going to be on two in a month. Congrats, girl. <laughs> Thank all because of you. <laughs> you are truly a queen, truly a queen. Um, I'm not going to make Kelsey go through the shiny light bulb questions again, because you can just, you know, scroll back and listen to 80, episode 86. You should even, you know, anyway, if you haven't listened before. But Kelsey, just give me the wave tops. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, I um, am Kelsey Bailey, a performance dietitian uh, in the Denver, Colorado area for my LLC, Be Well. Uh, I consult with South Metro Fire Rescue, um, Lakewood Police, Colorado Rockies, Colorado Avalanche, and have a vested interest in the, the wellness of women in our life as well. Oh my God, Kelsey, I'm going to visit Abby at the end of this month, and she has agreed. She and Sam are going to be on the podcast. So jealous. So good. Oh, you know what? You can join us if you want to. January 25 through 28, Raleigh. Oh I know you're not supposed to say that stuff on podcasts, but, and actually this episode will probably come out after. So that's fine. Perfect. You're not supposed to like take pictures of your dinner and post, hey, hey, I'm eating here right, right. now. It confuses people on dates. Well, and it also makes it really easy for stalkers to find us. So. Mm. Stalkers forget that I gave dates and times. Totally. Just forget that. Totally forget it. Okay. One of the things that really intrigued me about my last conversation with Kelsey is we dove just a little bit into gut health. Now, listeners, you have to understand, ironically, um, Kelsey, do you follow Ron Snar, scientist with a board? No. On Instagram? Okay. He's, he's amazing. And he just posted yesterday. He's like, we know so little about gut health that all of these influencers on Instagram and social media that are trying to tell you all of these special things are full of shit. So here's our disclaimer. (laughs) We know so little about it. We're learning, but Kelsey is a dietitian that helps her clients improve their gut health. So first of all, Kelsey, what the hell is gut health? Tell me, tell me it all. Yeah, the elusive thing we're all trying to trace. Um, the My favorite analogy of uh, microbiome research, this was years ago, but <clears throat> probably still stands true today, is 
we're in the first out of the first inning of research. So it's a good one. We still got a long ways to go. Um, I think there are things that we can probably say are pretty uh, beneficial and things that are not for the gut. Um, It's more, I think, the interactions with every other system within the body um, and within our hormone matrix and detox capacity that we still are learning so much of what the gut has to offer for the rest of our body and the the microbes that live within it. So um, gut health, I would say, is maybe loosely defined as having uh, my two questions on my intake form are, do we have pain, gas, diarrhea, bloating, constipation? If it's a yes to any of those, I'd say we have uh, a slight hit to our gut health. And then on uh, bowel movements, my questions are, do we have at least one a day or do we have more than three? And then what's the consistency? And people are always like, why do you ask me so many questions about my gut or about my bowel habits? I'm like, because I care how it goes in and I care how it comes out because it tells us a story. Your poo is telling you a story and you should listen. My friend Zamia also likes to talk about poop. She's a a personal trainer and a nutrition coach for clients in California. And she also does a poop intake form. And her clients are often a little bit curious about that. But she really loves to talk about poop. It's important. So, Kelsey, just as long as we're on poop, let's, I mean, you said at least one and not more than three. But are we looking for anything special with our poop, like color, consistency, like Pebbles, what are we looking for? <laughs> yeah. What's our the, goal? The Bristol stool sh- chart is our uh, ideal um, goal to look at for what we would consider a healthy bowel movement. And um, my uh, maybe crass way of describing that is long logs, long, smooth logs. That's what we're looking for. So those long, smooth logs. If we got pebbles, it's more cracky, then we're probably dealing with some constipation or inflammation. If it's really loose and feathery, then you have inflammation as well, but likely more um, related to diarrhea and maldigestion. Mm. So my firefighters, I have one agency who, um, and I don't know how they do it in Colorado, but in Illinois, we put in a, a certain amount of money for the year for what we call our station kitty. And that buys us like butter and condiments and etc. Okay. This agency's station kitties also buy them 55 gallon drums of Metamucil. (laughs) And and they sit out on the countertop displayed for the firefighters to help themselves to Metamucil. And I've always been concerned about that. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Good, bad, okay, indifferent. It depends. Yeah, every dietitian is. It depends. Um, (laughs) Fiber supplements are not the end-all, be-all. Certainly not. And this is a fantastic topic in talking about the microbiome because when we talk about fiber and its role within the microbiome is a lot of what comes in from our fiber is the food for the microbiome. So the the bacteria within the gut can feed off of the, the prebiotic fiber Um, and that's how they create their short chain fatty acids, which do all wonderful things in the body. Um, so when we say fiber, obviously, yes, it can add bulk to stool and soluble fiber is great with that. Um, but what we really want to pay attention to is that total intake in the day. And if my recommendations minimally for women is like 30 to 35, and I'd rather see closer to 40 for basically everybody. Um, and it's really like when you look up, what are your fiber needs? They'll generally recommend it based off of the amount of calories you consume. But truly, I think that the, that higher end, that 30 to 40 range is kind of that, that sweeter spot. And some people with plant-based diets, they're like at a hundred. So when we say 40, if people have more omnivorous diets, mix of animal and plant proteins and, um, foods coming in, it often takes some concerted effort to get to that fiber goal. And a lot of people don't know. So I'd highly recommend like, number one, if you have no clue at all, just track chronometer, um, my fitness pal, but please don't look at the calories. Cause that's a whole nother, another, another podcast. Um, Oh, Kelsey just, just booked herself for a fifth episode. <laughs> just get, get an idea of where you're at in that range of 30 to 40 fiber supplements. Going back to the Metamucil question add about five to seven grams total in the day. So cool, that's not nothing, but it's not everything. 
And we can't rely just as we wouldn't for any other micronutrient supplementation to out supplement the fiber that you're trying to get in from the diet. We don't want to out supplement any part of our diet. So um, that's my thoughts on Metamucil can be slightly helpful. And especially like there's sometimes when we're trying to really get stuff out of the gut and we want to make sure there's regular movement, I think fiber supplements can sometimes be helpful in that case, but it depends. I, I, I was so shocked when I walked it. Cause like the, I was kidding about obviously the 55 gallon drum, but these things are like huge. Yeah, I'm like, Okay. You mentioned prebiotics. So feeding the bugs. And I can remember from the classes I've taken 5,000 years ago that there's different types of fiber. And I I feel like, is it digestible and undigestible? Are those the terms or are there better terms? Soluble and insoluble fiber are the terms. Yeah. And insoluble fiber is exactly what it sounds like. It does not dissolve in water. Um, and that really adds a lot of bulk to the stool. Um, you'll see that in a lot of your like plant cellulose. It has to do with like the, the cells within the plant. Um, and then the soluble fiber is more of like the stuff that makes like the gumminess, like your metamucil. You'll see like kind of that like jelly or gummy looking thing. And that's more of your, um, your so- soluble fiber. Um, so yeah, both play different roles within the body. Um, nice mix of both if we're eating a lot of different plant foods. So let, let's go down that path just a little bit more. Cause he said a nice mix of both. How do I know as a consumer of food, yes. if the fiber I'm eating is soluble or insoluble, or do I just kind of like eat my fruits and vegetables and whole grains and just wing it? You <laughs> more that more that more, more of that yeah the the insoluble is m- like like wheat and stuff like that where you'll get like that coarsey brand material that helps with regularity and helps with laxity and stuff like that that soluble like I mentioned it more forms that like jelliness and it's more fermentable um, so ones that will feed that like prebiotic, that prebiotic function for the bacteria within the gut, it, it can contribute to laxation and regularity as well. Um, also can slow down, um, how quickly things go through the gut, um, can have an impact on the cholesterol impact on glycemic control. So different roles when we think about like, how do I get this much of this kind and this much of this kind? It's so much more about get a wide variety of plants and variety within the diet. So when we have like your, um, your whole grains are going to be that kind of like insoluble hit. And then more of our plant-based food items are going to be more of the, or like your vegetables and fruit are going to be more containing of the insoluble or soluble, sorry, fiber on that end. I have a really I like nice that. chart I wish I could send you that gives you like a nice arrows. <laughs> oh my God, send it and I'll put it in the show notes. Perfect. perfect. Yeah, right. I'm writing it down because I'll forget chart. So far for the show notes, I have the chronometer app. I have the Bristol stool, stool chart oh, because yes. everyone needs to look at their poop. 1000%. It's telling and then you a story. Gonna, your poop is telling your story. And then we have the Kelsey special fiber chart. Okay. Before I knew too much about the gut, and that's, I don't know a lot about the gut, but before I knew anything about the gut, let's, let's phrase it that way. I did not realize that so many of our neurotransmitters were actually made in the gut. And there was a connection between the brain and the gut. And that's fascinating. Yeah. Can you explain that to us all? For sure. Yeah, so about 90% of the body's serotonin is produced within the gut. Um, And when we talk about kind of the gut-brain axis, which um, really has kind of been expanded to a lot of other organ systems as well now, but the big one with the the brain is the connection with the vagal nerve that runs down the body and through the gut. Um, And I think this is maybe like backing us up a little bit, but when we think about the functions of the nervous system, we have our sympathetic nervous system, which typically people associate with like the fight or flight function, um, dialing up, epinephrine, cortisol, let's get ready to rumble. And then we have the parasympathetic side um, of that nervous system, which is our rest, which people more associate with and forget that digest is a component of that. 
So when we give like our little quips about the parasympathetic nervous system, it's rest and digest. But we forget that that digest, it has an enormous impact, that parasympathetic tone on how well we actually digest our food. And this is where it becomes so interesting to me with fire and police and military and anyone, anybody, medicine who works in high stress environments um, and they're in a state of probably having to throw something in their mouth and keep moving. I call them like the throne goes, you got to throw something in, you got to keep moving. There's like things being asked of you and you got to go. Great. We understand that that's a part of the job. If that's every single meal that we're having, we're having in a heightened sympathetic state. No wonder we're having some bowel issues. No wonder we're having some bloating after meal times. No wonder it feels gassy. We are not able to appropriately digest that food because we haven't engaged that side of the nervous system. And so some really simple tricks on that, because with the gut, I think what I always come back to is so many things are so intricately connected. And with that, there's so many practices that people have prior to eating, like, you know, whether that be prayer, or saying a favorite part of the day or whatever it might be. But really what that inherently is doing is taking that calming minute when they don't even realize it. That's like, it's just a nice parasympathetic engagement that we're having with the people that we're eating with. How you can practically do that if you're, you're not practicing any of those things or you're not eating with other people or whatever it might be, take three diaphragmatic breaths prior to eating. Engage a little bit more parasympathetic tone before we eat and see if some of your digestion improves. Or really like the number one thing we also say is slow down. Because when we're so fast, we're so highly sympathetic, it's just really hard to appropriately digest our food effectively. I'm going to speculate that the firehouse table might be one of the least healthy settings in which to eat. And the reason is, first of all, the TV's always blaring. Yeah. Potentially, there's also loud music on somewhere. Someone's playing their loud music. And then, at least at my fire station, we have five. There's only five people, but we have five different loud conversations, boisterous conversations going on at once. Wow. No yeah. wonder we're and gassy. <laughs> we under and like I think there's accepting what are some of the things that we can control, knowing that it's not always gonna be perfect. So when you're on your off days, when you're like off shift, when we're on the meals that we can control a little bit more, that's when we can really put those things into practice where like police or fire, like you might be eating in your car, you might be eating on the run, you may be starting a meal, setting that fork down and running because you got a call. So the we, we give grace for all of those things and understand like that's part of the, the, the system of the job we're asking you to do um, and really try and just think about it in other aspects when we have a little bit more control. Um, going back to your question a little bit more on um, the neurotransmitters and interaction with the brain, that's one area as well when we have disruption in the microbiome that we have further disruption in neurotransmitters. So not only serotonin, but in GABA and dopamine and um, serotonin, I mentioned norepinephrine, all of those things can, they have metabolic roots connected within the gut. And clearly all those things that if listeners are familiar with, you know, Cuberman, Peter T, are you familiar with GABA and, and these things and their impact on mood and cognitive function? Um, so we can think that when we have higher amounts of inflammation within the gut, we have a disruption within that, those pathways that can impact anxiety, that can impact depression, that can impact brain fog. And this is where um, a lot of times within nutrition, if there's a whole host of different things going on for somebody I'm working with, like we're experiencing skin rashes and we have bloating and we have brain fog and we have anxiety and gas, whatever it might be, I usually start with the gut. Because there's a high likelihood that if we can start bringing things together there and in reducing inflammation, tightening up the junctions within the gut, that we're likely going to see manifestation all over the body of improvement. That, that is amazing. I love to hear that. We talked about the goodness that is fruits, vegetables, fiber, soluble and insoluble. What else is good? Oh, we talked about being calm and having a nice relaxing dinner, but what else is good for the gut? 
Yeah, um, probably most commonly uh, sold and heard of is like the probiotic world. Um, that is the actual bacteria itself. Um, so we can, in natural places where we get that within the diet um, would be any sort of fermented foods. So we think about yogurt, we think about kefir, we think about kombucha, sauerkraut. Um, interestingly, in about two tablespoons of sauerkraut juice, you can get about 2 billion CFUs of probiotic. Um, so if people are not wanting to take a supplement, which are way less, um, I should say maybe not less control, less oversight over the industry, um, for sure on the, the probiotic supplementation world, but, um, probiotics would definitely be something I would incorporate within the diet and recommend all the time for folks. And oftentimes, I'm trying to reduce supplement burden. Like if people are getting annoyed by having to take too many things, we're trying to figure out, okay, what, what are we willing to try? Are we willing to try kimchi on something? Are we willing to try it if it's like mixed into a salad or if that's like a hard no, can we like enter that door of probiotics through yogurt? Maybe. Cool. Like what are we willing to explore on that and try and get some, some of that naturally occurring probiotic food within the diet itself and not so hard relying on um, supplementation for that. But, uh, between that and water intake, so we can obviously with our fiber intake, we want water intake within that as well. So those are big, big hitters on like gut health generally. And then you can really dive into kind of the supplemental world of depending on what's even going on within the gut, we would utilize different things. Um, one thing I would say on that, and we can kind of like maybe back up again a little bit, um, in the space of fire and police and tactical really. Um, and anybody who has high stress likely has some inflammation within the gut. That's probably true. We have more, um, acknowledged food intolerances and allergies than we probably have ever had, um, in our current world, which can also contribute to inflammation within the gut. And what that can lead to is, I, I know listeners can't see, but if you put all of your fingers really, really tight together um, and make a big palm, that's what the gut likes to look like. They're called tight junctions, and it's how our little nutrients try to get through our intestinal uh, lining into, through the, into the bloodstream. They like to stay really tight. They like to be happy and close together. Um, this helps keep out things that are not supposed to go back into circulation out and getting out through our stool and get helping the things that are supposed to get through, like our nutrients that we're eating, micronutrients, polyphenols, all of that back into circulation. What can happen when we have really high amounts of inflammation from stress, from some GI stuff going on, maybe it's in food intolerances, maybe it's a food allergy, maybe we're just physically stressed a lot and we're just experiencing that in the gut. Um, maybe we were on a course of antibiotics because it's tis the season of every child coming home with strep. And we're receiving some of that. Whatever it might be, we can have some sort of hit to the gut um, of inflammation and we get increased intestinal permeability. And instead of those tight junctions being really happy and nice together, all of a sudden you can make a number five with your hand. And that's what the junctions are starting to look like. We're starting to get bigger gaps within them. Uh, kind of like the more popularized term on social media you'll see is leaky gut, but in the research, you'll see it called increased intestinal permeability. And what that means is that things that are not supposed to be going back into circulation can kind of sneak through these bigger gaps. And what happens with that is the body is like, wait a second, you're not supposed to be here. I thought you were supposed to get out of here. Let's send an immune response. So then sometimes we can get a heightened immune response. And then people who are more genetically prone to some autoimmune issues in their life um, may have higher propensities of seeing flares of those things, or even, you know, clicking on our epigenome impact of that uh, autoimmunity. Um, if we have a ton of intestinal permeability and this constant immune reaction to things that are not supposed to be going back into the bloodstream. I hope that was a simple enough explanation of that, but that is such a vital piece of, under the understanding of the impact of the gut in the tactical space. No, that was perfect. And I loved the, you know, tight fingers. We have a little fence and then now they're 
of five and things can get through. That's an amazing analogy. I love analogies. I want to ask you about the things that can poorly impact the gut. So as we said before, let's put a pin in it though, because I want to ask you about water. Yeah. Now, I would love to actually go into the research. Every time I have a question, go into the research and find the answer. I don't have time to, to chase every single thing. I have heard two different viewpoints and I admittedly have not looked up any research. One viewpoint is you should drink a full glass of water before you have dinner or lunch or whatever, because that will help provide some satiety and perhaps get you to not overeat. So that's one school of thought. Another school of thought I've heard is you should not absolutely not do that because you are diluting the hydrochloric acid in your stomach and potentially causing yourself digestive challenges. Is there some truth to either one of those or is it somewhere in the middle or tell me about the water situation? Yeah. On hydrochloric acid specifically, I I don't know if I can speak to that. I've never heard that before. And I've done a few uh, um, advanced courses on gut health and that's never been one thing that's been discussed. Um, There are definitely other things that cause low stomach acid that are of concern, like chronic omeprazole or PPI use is a Mm. huge concern in the tactical populations because those are never meant to be on long-term. So we can put a pin in that and (laughs) add that to our list of discussion um, with regard to low stomach acid. But with regard to water, I think that, again, it would depend on how I give recommendations for this. So let's say we're having um, a hard time eating enough. That would be a time where I would um, put water at, at an opposite time of food. Um, where maybe somebody has really high calorie needs or training for something really big. We time water away from our meal time so that we have enough space within the stomach, enough real estate um, to eat what we need to eat from our actual food. If we're trying to look at maybe weight management and we're looking at feeling more full from meals, obviously we would focus too on the fiber content coming in from the meal, but that can be a time when I would just encourage normal water consumption with a meal. Um, versus separating it out. I think that um, I would never tell firefighters to not drink water, knowing how dehydrated everybody is. That's probably bad time. advice for firefighters. Um, <laughs> but uh, again, that'd probably be like a little asterisk of it depends. But yeah, interesting question. But yeah, I have far more concerns of other things impacting hydrochloric acid versus water. All right. So I guess the real answer is I'm probably going to have to do a lit search and see if there is any actual data for. Yeah, I can report back too. If I find (laughs) anything good, I'll report back. Same, same girlfriend. If I find anything, you'll be the first to know. Okay. So we put a pin in because we had talked about things that were had positive impacts on gut health. And we put a pin in some of the things that can have detrimental or bad impacts on gut health. Tell me more. (laughs) probably not surprising to many people, but in our good camp, we have like our fiber, our polyphenols, water, probiotics. In our uh, not so great for the gut side of the house is high chronic stress, disrupted circadian rhythm, uh, a highly processed or low fiber, um, low fiber diet, Um, alcohol, I would lump into that as well. Um, as all being kind of our biggest effectors of the gut that may be more like lifestyle and food. I, you could theoretically throw in maybe antibiotic use, but that's also very appropriate at certain times. I think it's important to be judicious on asking your doctor about those things, but um, oftentimes is needed. So those would be my camps of things that maybe add more uh, insult and inflammatory properties to the gut for sure, increasing that intestinal permeability. How about caffeine? Any impact of caffeine in maybe a dose-dependent matter yeah, or what the delivery yeah, is? Yeah, excessive one would be one I would have, like, just to hold a little bit of caution on. This one is so funny because people build up a nice tolerance to caffeine. Um, <laughs> and it's, like, ability to pull water into the gut and kind of help things move along as its diuretic effect. Um, Typically, if you have a pretty solid tolerance of caffeine, you don't necessarily have that as strongly. 
Um, but everybody's probably familiar with like the coffee poop in the morning. So uh, I think if anything can be a little bit beneficial from that sense of getting things moving, but in excessive doses, as with anything, um, I so very rarely would ever recommend over 400 milligrams of caffeine. So really above that, what I would say, like hold caution on elevated cortisol, which thereby kind of elevated inflammation throughout the entire body. I think all across the country, there was a collective moan when you said <laughs> alcohol. Yeah. And woof, woof. Um, do you, can you elaborate on maybe the mechanism of that? Or does it just go back to alcohol is not good for any system in the well, body? Alcohol is a toxin. So that, that, that's it. <laughs> that alcohol is a toxin and the body has to do a fair amount of work to be able to effectively get that out of the system. I think that I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not a zealot on either side of this argument with alcohol. Um, but I think that there's interesting things to note about it, which is there was some thought, like, especially in like the Mediterranean communities, like, is there benefit to some minor amounts of alcohol? Some recent research is saying no, no amount is safe. So I think that I don't, I don't really know what the exact answer is on like the amount that's safe. I would say less than seven drinks in a week would be my recommendation personally as a dietitian, um, impacting sleep, impacting other things. But the truth of the matter is from the gut perspective, it's a toxin. The liver has to do a fair amount of work in um, clearing that out so we can effectively metabolize it and get it out of the system. Um, if we already have kind of like sluggish detox capacity, that's another thing to consider. Um, it's not that you can just like go in and do a test of like, what's my detox look like? But there's enormous amounts of um, micronutrients that are utilized in the phases of detox within the liver and alcohol can slow all of those down. So if we're looking at getting other exposures that we get from work or from life or from gear that we're getting exposed to and we want them effectively excreted, we rely heavily on high-functioning liver to do that. And if we're challenging the liver with other things, we impact our ability to effectively clear that out in a timely fashion, which is tied to gut health in that the liver oftentimes will send things back to the gut to be excreted through feces. So again, so interconnected with so many different things, but Alcohol also generally can cause inflammation within the lining of the intestine. So when we talk about that increased intestinal permeability, alcohol also impacts that as well. I love how diplomatic you are, Kelsey. It just, <laughs> it appeals to my, just appeals to me. And so I know that when you're speaking to your firefighters, they're like, okay, lady, I maybe don't like what you're saying, but I hear you. So. <laughs> I'm willing to at least entertain an idea. <laughs> if there are dietitians out there that are interested in working with firefighters, you can definitely take a lesson from Kelsey because we do not appreciate hard lines in the sand. We do not appreciate shoulds. And um, you just have to speak to us very diplomatically. Yeah. I personally don't either. Yeah, probably, probably nobody does. It's probably like the rebellious nature of a, my personality of being like, I just don't want to be told what to do. I like that about you. I like that about you. Okay. We put a pin in the antacid situation. <laughs> so usually me. the story goes like this. Yeah. I have quote unquote acid reflux. I go to the doctor. They put me on a script. And for the rest of my life, I continue to take that script and also munch Tums after every meal. Mm-hmm. Why is that, that is not story. a great strategy? Why is that not that a great strategy? Is, that is the story. Um, it's such a common story. And it is such a common story and tactical. It's one that some of my colleagues and I have really tried to push education on um, in the last few years of just realizing how long people have been on things like omeprazole and those PPIs are meant to be shorter term for most individuals. And ideally we're working on diet modifications to also help reduce GERD. Um, but within that, when we have that chronic um, proton um, pump inhibitor that 
reducing this acid within the stomach is the that job. Um, what can happen with that is we get a state of low stomach acid. And the why that matters and how this becomes a weird loop is that the stomach acid causes the valve that goes from the esophagus to the stomach to close effectively and to remain tight. When we have low stomach acid, that valve starts to weaken. And ironically, acid starts to creep back up into the esophagus, causing more heartburn, causing more omeprazole, causing more tongue use. And we're not fixing the cause of that, which is we have low stomach acid to begin with. We need adequate pH within the stomach to maintain those tight closures on that valve. So I think that some of it, it's just an education piece of saying, like, we're in a loop. We got to figure out how to break this loop. We're going to figure out how to help calm down your GERD in the meantime, because we know that that's causing you trouble and probably causing you sleep disruption. So let's figure out, like, what effector foods we have. Do we have high acidic foods coming in that are causing like every time you have pasta sauce or every time you have alcohol or coffee, more acidic foods that's causing a lot of GERD. Like, let's address that and work on increasing your stomach acid again. Um, there's ways to retrain stomach acid, which are cool. Um, a simple test at home you can do. Um, I love listeners this. are interested to assess your own stomach acid. Um, it's called the baking soda test. And you can do a quarter teaspoon of fresh fresh baking soda. So right from the grocery store, fresh and not open. So not one that you've already had in your pantry. Go get a fresh one. It's like 99 cents, quarter of a teaspoon into eight ounces of warm water. First thing in the morning before you do anything else, start a timer, see how long it takes you to burp. (laughs) And typically if we have good stomach acid, you'll burp in under a minute. I love that test. And you know, the last time I did it, I did it with old baking soda. Yeah. And I never burped. Yeah. Never. You're well, like, what's happening? What's happening? Well, and here's, I feel like a kindergartner now. I have a story. Yes, please. We love it. Um, I was probably on the job less than five years. So I was under 40 years old. I was running outside with one of my friends and I started to have chest pain. I thought I was having a heart attack. Very fit at that time. Um, As it turns out, I was having severe reflux. I was under a lot of stress. I wasn't good at handling my stress at that time. And so it was, it was just bad. And it actually got so bad that I went to the emergency room and they gave me a, oh my God, what do you call it? It's a cocktail, but it actually has lidocaine and a, um, something else to calm down everything. It felt so good. And they're like, you, you cannot live like this. It had only been two weeks, but I was having like this daily chest pain. So I went to a gastro person and they ended up doing an endoscopy and they said, we didn't really find anything. Um, but you had this little tiny polyp right at the pyloric sphincter. We don't think it was a problem at all, but we snipped it off and like, like you're probably still going to have all this reflux and blah, blah, blah. Here's your prescription. Kelsey, the relief I got from snipping that polyp was incredible. I've never had another digestive issue. So interesting. Right. But yeah. I could have been that person on the the hamster wheel. Yeah. In the loop. Yeah. And I think it's so common and I'm a huge supporter of like, let's work with your med team. I, we yeah. I just had a conversation yesterday with a guy who was going into his gastro and I was like, here's the questions I would ask. Here's the things I would make sure to get more information on. And I think that oftentimes we, and rightfully so we go into specialists and we want them to obviously be able to do their job, but don't be afraid to ask your own questions in it as well and really have a good bi-directional communication about it. I think there's so much too on like composition of the microbiome that we're still learning. So Yeah. So cool. Also, I'm sorry that that happened. Ow. Yeah, it was it was intense. I had to sleep sitting up, like up, up. Yeah. And it, it came on like nothing, like right there, boom. And then it quit. It stopped as soon as I got that snipped off. Also, we need to talk about our mutual friend. I hope she's listening. She usually does. Megan Louts. Megan Louts, welcome to the virtual show. That poor darling has reflux. 
Mm-hmm. And I have told her a million times, Megan, I think you have low stomach acid. <laughs> and so, Megan, we need you to do the burp test and report back. Okay. Yeah, do the baking soda test, report back. Report back. Safe for all stages of life. Yes. Burp test, fresh baking soda. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Kelsey, I'm looking. Oh, I got another one for you. I was going to say, I have a couple too. If you. Uh, Wherever no, you want to take this. You go because I have um, I have this written down and it's kind of like a shocker, like National Enquirer stuff. So we'll do it last. Oh, okay. Perfect. <laughs> I think the mic that, is yours, my dear. Oh, great. Um, we talked about a little bit of the interaction of the gut on other impacts of the body. Um, I think that more interestingly, what's getting fleshed out now is like there's gut muscle connections. There's gut bone connections. There's gut skin connections, there's gut reproductive connections, there's gut lung connections and heart and endocrine system. Um, And so when we think about all these um, different aspects, I think people maybe underestimate the power of the gut. And I say that to number one, like uh, elucidate some interest maybe in, in all the power that the gut can have, but so frequently, obviously, a lot of the conversations I have are surrounding hormone optimization. And part of that story is the gut. Um, There's, if listeners have not heard of this word, um, there's something called the endobolome, which is the the interaction between our endocrine system and our microbiome and the ability for steroid hormones to get appropriately produced. There's genes and different pathways within our gut microbiota that do that. Um, so if we have a largely disrupted gut, we're also seeing manifestations in hormone function. That would be an area that I would look at. Also, um, interesting because that portion of the gut microbiota also gets impacted, um, by things like endocrine disrupting chemicals that we can see within, um, supplements that comes a lot of times. Um, at one point, I think it was like 2016 or 2017, there was a study done on, um, sports supplements, and it was like 85% were contaminated with endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, yes, that should raise eyebrows. Uh, I got the big eyes going on right now. They're <laughs> yeah. like saucers. Yeah, should raise some eyebrows. Um, that's things like um, more of those like forever chemicals that we think about that can impact our endocrine function, things that exist within gear and um, exposures that we get through the job. Um, we mentioned that, you know, again, everything's all really tied together. God's connected to the liver, impacting our body to effectively get that out. Um, but also pathways that produce these hormones. Um, and especially for men and for women, um, there's something also called the estrobolome, um, which is the impact that um, between estrogen and the gut microbiota. And depending on what type of bugs are growing within the gut um, or have taken up real estate, uh, some of them can produce a compound called beta-glucuronidase. And estrogen is super interesting in that um, it goes through the liver, it gets conjugated in phase two detox, and that's how it kind of gets sent out. Like, we're going to deactivate you, estrogen, and we're going to send you out. You know, thank you for your service. Um, goodbye. And goodbye. what beta-glucuronidase can do in higher amounts, so some of these bugs within the gut can produce this beta-glucuronidase in higher amounts, And what that does is deconjugates estrogen. So instead of it being deactivated, it got deactivated in the liver, goes to the gut, gets reactivated, and can get sent back into circulation. Another hamster wheel. Another hamster wheel. And what that can do for women um, is we can have experiences of estrogen dominance, but really like a dysregulation between estrogen and progesterone. And as the body really likes to function in nice ratios of that, um, as we tend to experience later in life when those ratios get out of whack and we can feel it. Um, but that recirculating of estrogen can lead to things like breast tenderness and severe PMS symptoms and fibroids and symptoms of higher estrogen mood swings. Um, and in men, we can also get some of those symptoms of higher estrogen. If we have really high amounts of beta-glucuronidase deconjugating estrogen that's in their system as well and getting recycled. So, I think it's so interesting to also understand that there is the bacteria within our gut are also either can be really helpful or really um, not as helpful or harmful in managing our hormone pathways and our 
how effectively we're excreting some of the things that we should be excreting through the body as well. So just to give your listeners like little, little teasers, estrobilome, endobilome, um, estrobilome, the flesh out of research is becoming so, so interesting on um, the different cancers that women are susceptible to um, and what their, their gut microbiome looks like. (sighs) (laughs) Okay. Kelsey, I'm all about the shock and I know, but I, I love it. And I'm all about the shock and awe. In other words, when I educate, I think we may have even talked about this last time, when I educate on sleep, what makes men listen is if you don't sleep, your testosterone drops. Here's the study. Okay. Just remind men, what are the symptoms, some of the symptoms of elevated estrogen in men? Yeah. The most common one would probably be gynecomastia or man boobs. Yeah. What's affectionately referred to as man boobs. Um, we can also see, uh, mood swings within that as well. Um, less common on like obviously the women's side of the house. Well, the same symptoms that women mm-hmm. experience, but those are the two, the two big ones that I look at, but for men, emotional feeling teary, stuff like that. Yeah. I think, I don't know if there's a man out there that's like, sign me up for the man boobs. Totally. Pretty sure. Pretty sure not. Right. So well, and estrogen plays a big role in both of our bodies. And so we, we want some of it. We just yes. don't want, everybody wants Goldilocks. We want to be in just the right zone. Oh, I like that. Um, I want to, because Kelsey was talking about contamination of supplements. And even if you are not a professional athlete, an NCAA athlete who's getting tested, you still don't want your supplements to be contaminated. So Kelsey, riff on third-party testing. They need to hear it every single time. (laughs) Um, Third-party testing looks at the uh, purity of ingredient on the label. Things like NSF for sport, informed choice, informed choice for sport, USP and BSCG are your big companies that will be doing third-party testing. Um, If it just says third-party testing but doesn't tell you one of those companies, don't trust it. If it says an FDA-inspected facility... um, but doesn't have that third-party testing sticker on it, don't trust it because there's not a 100% guarantee that that was not made in someone's basement. Uh, And we should care about that because there's a ton of things that come into our supplement, not just endocrine disrupting chemicals, which we should also care about, but heavy metals is a really big one um, that come in. And yeah, supplement procurement is so different across the, across the world. So um I would hold so much caution with that and stick with your, and you don't want to waste your money. You don't want to waste your money. I love the, yeah, you don't want it made in someone's mom's basement. That's for sure. And if you're Um, not 100%. I mean, if it's your mom's basement, maybe, but still probably not. Um, Still don't even know where those ingredients came from. Kelsey, you mentioned that you had a couple topics. Did you get them both off of your chest? I would love to hear yours first. And then I I have just like a couple anecdotes if we want them at the end. Okay, we'll end with anecdotes. Okay. Some research came out. It was a bit ago now that the microbiome of obese persons was different than the microbiome of leaner humans. And so they were actually... I don't know if they do it anymore, but they were actually doing fecal implants, taking mm-hmm. poop from lean people. I mean, they weren't literally taking poop. It was desiccated and put in a suppository, all of the things. And changing the microbiome of the obese people and effectively helping them lose weight. First of all, gross, <laughs> but also so fascinating. So, so my cool. Yeah, my question is, is it chicken or egg? Is the obert up obers? Oh my gosh. Is the obese person's microbiome different and therefore they become obese? Or does the microbiome become different because they are obese? Does that question even make sense? Chicken it does or make egg? sense. And I would maybe say I'm not I don't know if I'm uh, qualified to answer that question, but my gut instinct would be both and. <laughs> Your gut instinct. Um, yeah. No pun intended. Uh, with that, my very first presentation I ever gave as a dietitian on the microbiome, I, I provided that rat study that they took the microbiome from an obese rat and put it into a lean one and vice versa. 
And it's fascinating. The, the soldiers I was presenting to came up afterwards and were like, cool, I just need to like follow around my lean friends and collect their poop. Like, great. I'm so glad that that's exactly what you took from that presentation out of all the other things we talked about. Um, but uh, yes, that, inter- that research is so interesting. Um, and especially like that kind of generated from treatment from, of C. diff. We had really severe life-threatening C. diff within a hospital setting, a fecal transplant um, from a healthy individual into a person who's suffering from C. diff creates a, like a 99% survival rate when if Dang. we're just trying to kill that off with other antibiotics, but not receding that guy, survival rates were not as high. I think it was like in the 60 to 70% range. So if the like in that sense, it was like kind of life or death. And we figured out a really great way to be able to receive the gut microbiome in a quick and effective and safe way, all the, all the above. Um, interestingly with that, if we say like healthy microbiome, we don't like, what does that even mean? We don't have that information on like exactly what the beautiful composition of a quote unquote healthy microbiome is. So in doing some of these transfers, you're, you're receiving genetic material from another individual. And so some of that, yeah, you can see that, uh, that people maybe had C. diff, had a fecal transplant, and now we're dealing with weight issues that they've never dealt with before. Uh, um, so, whoa. yeah. And part of that, I, and I wouldn't say all of it, but an interesting thing that we are beginning to flesh out the research on is um, the the families of bacteria that we're looking at ratios of. So there's the bacteriotes and there's the firmicutes. And when that ratio is off, we can start to see higher amounts of obesity. And that would be our commensal bacteria. That would be like in our good bacteria that we have when we have really low amounts of a bacteria that can be really beneficial. Uh, Acromancia is like a really interesting one that can impact obesity, that can impact type 2 diabetes, um, and that we can figure out, you know, what does that actually look like within the gut? Um, and be able to supplement a little bit more targeted than we historically have done with probiotics, which is just kind of like a carpet bomb of supplementation and like kind of hope for the best. Um, as it kind of is with antibiotic use is like, oftentimes you have a broad spectrum antibiotic and you're like, we'll just kill off everything on the probiotic side. It's also sometimes the case where it's like, just let's see what we can get growing. And we'll like, we know these guys are beneficial. Um, but some things like acromancia is a super interesting one because it's an anaerobic bacteria. And so it's very hard to make and it's very hard to store because you have to have no oxygen um, mm. interrupting with the process of the manufacturing. Um, so things like that, I think, are keep an eye on the research on, keep an eye on what comes out in that space. Um, but 1000%, there's an impact on the gut microbiota and risk of uh, weight management. And we even see that within changes in lifespan, like with women going through perimenopause and menopause, and we have changes within estrogen, but we have changes within our vaginal microbiome and within our gut microbiome, and that can impact weight management. So it's so fascinating to think about all the different things that the bugs within our gut play a role on. Um, now the firefighters are Googling acromancia and where can I buy it? <laughs> There's only one company I know that makes it in that anaerobic uh, capacity. <laughs> it's probably super expensive, I it would is. guess. I think it's pretty expensive, yeah. That's so funny. Okay, um, I want to hear your anecdotes. Um, a couple of my little anecdotes, and then maybe we can end with, I have like, I don't even know how many there are, eight or ten different ways that you can support digestion yes. cheap, cheaply. Yes. Um, things we can implement today. Um, my my short anecdote is um, I've had one individual, I have multiple right now, but I'll give these two stories. One in the police force and one in fire. Um, female police officer struggling with um, uncontrolled bowel. So needing to go to the bathroom, but needing to go right away. Mm-hmm. And that's almost impossible to know at all times when you're in a patrol car where you can stop. And came to me asking about gut health. And there's a there's now tests that we can do to kind of look at some of the composition and get an idea. I think as with anything, we hold caution on like, what's the ideal range for all these things to be in? But at least do we know if something's growing that's not supposed to be there? Um, so we did a qPCR test on her on her gut. It's called a GI map, and there's gut zoomers and gut GI effects. Different companies have different things, but 
looked at the composition within our gut, um, she had candida overgrowth, uh, which is a yeast and which can really commonly happen um, when we have a high amount of sugar coming in from the diet. That yeast feeds off of sugar and it has a field day. Yes, Mm. thank you. Um, we did diet recall, higher consumption of soda. Like I had like four or five throughout the day. Um, had sweetened tea kind of mixed in there as well. And I was like, let's eliminate just that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See if we can start to improve symptomology. And then let's kind of rebuild the gut appropriately as we need to with, you know, good fiber and water and probiotics and stuff like that. Um, super quickly was resolved of the issues no longer having to sprint like within a couple of weeks. And that's a big win when months and months and months we're dealing with this, thinking that this might be my life forever. Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Um, And my other story is uh, a firefighter had been in for a while and you know, the culture of the fire department. Like if someone has a lot of gas and a lot of whatever, they're going to just never hear the end of it. Um, and it was one of those stories like on the rig, getting, getting crap about it and the station getting crap about it all the time. Um, and he was like, you know, like whatever I can deal with that. It's more just like uncomfortable to be at work and to feel so bloated and feel so uncomfortable and feel so, um, gassy. And so we did that same test on him, figured out what was going on. We had some, um, excessive bacteria of some like uh it's called h pylori um which is super common um got that back in check and he sent me an email a couple weeks ago and was like i didn't even know you could poop like this i didn't even know (laughs) someone could have such amazing poops i was like that's the best email i could possibly receive so i guess i say both of those stories to say that your gut microbiome is constantly in transition even if we do a test on it, we are testing that exact moment in time. So every day, every wherever, what time zone you're in, what country you're in, your microbiome is constantly responding and shifting to that. But it doesn't mean that if you have longer term issues, there is not something we can do about it. So always be be willing to like ask the question because especially with things like maldigestion and gas and blood, if it's really uncomfortable, you, it is not forever. You do not need to stay with that forever. My coworkers are going to know exactly who I'm talking about, but I will protect his anonymity from the greater United States and Canada and the world. But this man, I have worked with him for 20 years, and he has the most rotten smelling gas. And his wife and his family have made him go get a colonoscopy, endoscopy, all of the things. And he always comes back with a clean bill of health. And I am totally going to make him call you. Mm-hmm. I can send him the test tomorrow. Yeah. And his sons, his little, well, they're not little boys anymore. Same thing. And his dad, same thing. So it's got to be genetic. Yeah. Yep. And there's, there's really common ones that cause really foul smelling or like eggy smelling. There's certain oh, bacteria so that bad. cause that. So yeah, there's definitely things to be done um, for things like that um, without having to do huge courses of antibiotics and stuff like that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Back to your digestion list. I'm excited for this. Oh yes. Fine. Oh yeah. Our, 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 what can you do today? What do you, what do you start Today. Today. Number one on my list is slow the F down. Mm. Slow down. Are we actually thoroughly chewing our food? Do we even know if that's happening? I don't even think about it, maybe. Um, so slow the F down. Um, number two would be to take those three diaphragmatic breaths prior to the mealtime. Try and see if we can get engaged that parasympathetic tone. See if that helps with some of the, the gas and bloating. Also, when we eat really quickly and chew really fast or like wolfing stuff down, quote unquote, we're bringing in a ton of air. So that makes sense if we have some bloating and stuff after that type of meal. Um, going back to the first um, podcast we had, try and eat as many whole foods as we possibly can, 80%, which helps us get enough fiber. So that fiber goal, again, minimum 30 for women but ideally for men and women closer to that 40 mark is that minimum goal. Diversify is number, what are we on, five? Um, 
diversify. The gut loves diversity, which is why I don't love chronic probiotic supplementation unless there's special cases because we're constantly feeding the same strains to the gut, but the gut likes diversity. It wants to be diverse. So why, by bringing in a wide array of food items, plant food items, we give the gut a lot of diversity. This is also kind of the trap of like um, brown rice and chicken and broccoli and brown rice and chicken and broccoli forever and always. We lack diversity. So yeah, maybe we're hitting our macronutrients, but we're really lacking that diversity for the gut. So trying to get in two colors, all this kind of kind of ties back together again with that. So diversify for also gut health. Don't forget the fresh herbs. Don't fresh forget herbs. that. Yes, um, for especially for liver health. Um, drink enough water. Uh, at least half of your body weight in ounces of fluid, if not closer to one-to-one if you're a heavy sweater. Exercise can be really helpful for gut motility. Um, and I would also caution with that, we mentioned this, I think, in the first time, that that also might mean exercise that engages more prayer, sympathetic tone, yoga, meditation, things like walking. Sometimes that's what we need to do to help get gut motility on, on point versus like hard in the paint. There's time, time and place for both. So exercise, self-inventory on stress. And I always love being able to work with a more comprehensive team on this. Um, but I think as dietitians, we should always be asking that question. I, in my intake scale of one to 10, where's your stress level? Where do you perceptively gauge that as or subjectively gauge that as? Because tactical is always going to gauge there's lower than gen pop, but they're higher. But like, so gen pop, they're like, I don't know, like a three or four people in tactical are often like, I don't know, five or six, which is probably like a gen pop sub nine or 10. Yes. So do a little inventory on your own perceived stress. And if we're appropriately utilizing tools to help mitigate those things or get support on those things, um, pay attention is one of the last ones. Um, so how hungry am I? How full am I? Am I even mindful of any of the food coming in? Mindfully unmindful, maybe sometimes at work, uh, but at home when you have control. Again, that incorporates that slowdown and more of that parasympathetic tone. And then last but not least, if you want some extra support <laughs> as like a physical addition to your home, I'm a huge fan of the squatty potty. Oh, yes. I think we have that at several of our stations. Yeah. So I think maybe some of the listeners are familiar, but just just give us the wave tops. What in the hell is a squatty potty? It's a little stool that you can put your feet on to better get an angle of getting stool out. So if we have, if it feels like you're straining a fair amount um, when you're trying to go to the bathroom, little kids, this is also helpful for, um, you can put your feet on a squatty potty and it changes the angle, helps motility. And I just thought of something, um, at least in my department, most of the women's quote unquote locker rooms, they're not locker rooms, they're just single use bathrooms are also the handicapped um, stall, so to speak. And like my, I'm tall and my feet dangle in the bathroom. That's yeah. not good. Yeah, That's not good people. Bear it out. <laughs> if your feet are dangling, things Get aren't happening right. Get yourself a squatty potty. Get yourself Get a step stool. Get yourself anything you can put your feet on. Well, Kelsey, I have one more question and it's basically a yes or no question. And yeah. if it's no, I'm going to be so disappointed. <laughs> Did you get that little boy his dog yet? No. Oh, Kelsey. I know. It's been he a is month. So sweet though. He really is. <laughs> I need to stop traveling. Maybe then we could. Oh but, my gosh. Yeah, I'm so here. willing to help Still you pick obsessed. it out. He sleeps now with three dogs, three stuffed dogs. Mm-mm. It's never gonna change. I'm 53. It never changed. Yeah. He's obsessed. I'll keep you updated. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just literally text me on the weekly and let me know because it's important <laughs> to me. photos of him chasing after dogs at the park. It's important to me. Um, well, this has been an, another awesome conversation. I'm so glad you agreed to come back. And we're trying to get Kelsey and some other badass dietitians on for a panel, but it's really hard to get four busy women <laughs> together. So listeners, that's coming up. Um, do you think we can drop the mic, Kelsey? Yeah, let's do it. 
Okay. We're dropping the mic, but carefully because it's expensive. Thanks, Kelsey. Thank you. You guys have a good one. Okay. Kelsey and I set a precedent last time, which was, oops, we forgot something, P.S. And so we're just going to keep that going. Kelsey, tell us about the rainforest. I should have better notes. (laughs) I should be a better interviewer. Lose track of my time. Um, What we were talking about is the gut microbiome is kind of like a rainforest. So we have trees and we have bushes and we have moss and we have logs and we have all this stuff kind of like living in this happy little um, biome all together and it's everything's able to flourish. That's kind of like quote unquote healthy microbiome. When we have some sort of insults to the gut microbiome or the gut generally, um, whether that's antibiotics or stress or illness or travel or whatever it might be, uh, we can start to mow down some of those things. So maybe some of the trees get mowed down and some of the bushes get mowed down. And all of a sudden, some of this like fungi or moss that was kind of like getting, it was kept in check by some of these other things. It's like, oh shit, I got some opportunity to start to take over. We call those opportunistic bacteria. Things like staph and strep and pseudomonas, things that we all carry in certain amounts, but can be like, oh yeah, here's my time. I'm going to take up that real estate. I'm going to move into that yard and I'm going to move into that yard. I'm going to move into that yard. And what can happen is we have this negative bacteria or opportunistic bacteria that can start to take over and create an imbalance in said rainforest. Um, So what we can do in different sort of um, interventions within the gut is get that opportunistic bacteria back into check and then allow for that real estate to be repopulated by good bacteria, whether through supplementation, diet, probably both. But that's kind of a nice analogy to think about with the microbiome and really what can happen when we say like negative bacteria, good bacteria is that it's really taken up real estate that we'd rather be um, taken up by our commensal or good bacteria. More toucans, less bad bacteria. You didn't mention the toucans. And listeners, this came in response to Kelsey and I were off the air and I asked her about my coworkers raging bad gas and, uh, then she, she's like, it's a rainforest. I should have said that. Yes, here we are. We yeah. said it. Check. We said it. Now my job. Now we're dropping the mic. Story. Now we're dropping the mic. Thanks for listening. And Kelsey, I will talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you.